only book in the Bible where God isn't mentioned once, prayer isn't mentioned once, uh, you know, and it's like even Luther and Calvin, when they wrote their commentaries on the different books of the Bible, they didn't bother to write a commentary on Esther because uh, they kind of weren't quite sure how Esther seemed to get into the Bible. And uh, Esther, if you're still looking for her, she comes after Nehemiah and before, I think it's Job. Yeah, before Job um, in the Old Testament. And I'll just uh, quickly tell you a bit of the background. Uh, and then um, Afi is going to read uh, a section uh, of uh, Esther chapter 2 to us. Uh, there's a guy called King Xerxes. He ruled over 127 provinces stretching from India to somewhere called Kush. And I think that gives the impression it was a big place. He was a big guy, an important guy. And uh, what he did is uh, he held a kind of party that went on for 180 days, which, if my maths is correct, is about half a year. And uh, this party had everything, and he just celebrated his magnificence how much money he had, how much wealth he had, everything was laid on. And at the end of these 180 days, he held a feast that lasted seven days. My idea of heaven, food for a week, non-stop. And uh, in the middle of this feast, he commanded his queen, a lady called Queen Vashti, uh, to come and so that everyone could see how beautiful his wife was. And uh, she refused. She said she wasn't coming. And he got a bit knocked about this. And uh, he consulted his eunuchs for some reason. There were seven of them. And, uh, and said, what do I do? Uh, I've told her to come and she won't come. And uh, the eunuchs basically said, we've got an idea. Uh, why don't you just kind of get rid of her and have a new queen? Which is kind of what I would do if I was in his position. And uh, they were saying, it's not just that she's disobeyed you, but she has set a terrible example for all the other women in the whole of your empire. If you let her get away with disobeying you, then all the other wives are going to disobey their husbands, and we cannot for a moment put up with that. And so he kind of decided to get rid of her and audition for a new queen. And we pick up the story with... Afi's going to read uh, the first part of Esther, chapter 2. Later, when the anger of King Xerxes had subsided, he remembered Vashti and what she had done and what he had decreed about her. Then the king's personal attendants proposed, let a search be made for a beautiful young virgins for the king. Let the king appoint commissioners in every province of his realm to bring all these beautiful girls to the harem at the citadel of Susa. Let them be placed under the care of Hegai, the king's eunuch, who is in charge of the women, and let the beauty treatments be given to them. Then, let the girl who pleases the king be queen instead of Vashti. This advice appealed to the king, and he followed it. Now there was in the citadel of Susa a Jew of the tribe of Benjamin named Mordecai, son of Jair, the son of Shemai, the son of Kish, who had been carried into exile from Jerusalem by Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon. Among those taken captive was Jehoiasin, king of Judah. Mordecai had a cousin named Hadassah, whom he had brought up because she had neither father nor mother. This girl, who was also known as Esther, was lovely in form and features, and Mordecai had taken her as his own daughter when her mother and father died. 
And so, there was, uh, there was Esther. Uh, she, was, um, she was a Jewish girl, and she was an orphan, and Mordecai, her uncle, treated her, her cousin rather, treated her like he was, um, she was his own daughter. And they were part of a remnant of Jewish people who lived in the empire. They, hadn't, they came out during the exile. They were exiled then, and they hadn't gone back to Israel. So they were a small minority. They were a small minority in a pagan, in a pagan empire. And there was uh, uh, Esther. She, she went, and she was taken to the king's palace. And uh, um, then he provided her with beauty treatments and special food. He assigned to her seven maids selected from the king's palace and moved her and her, her maids into the best place in the harem. Um, Esther hadn't said at that time who she was. But to cut a long story short, by the end of uh, Esther chapter 2, she gets picked to be the new queen. She gets chosen uh, by King Xerxes to be his new wife. And she becomes a bit like a trophy wife. And over the course of the next five days, uh, we're going to be looking at the whole of the story of Esther and what this unusual story from way back thousands of years ago that's in the Bible that now doesn't even mention God or prayer or anything like that, that, like that can speak to us today. The obvious first parallel I want to draw is this. Uh, we, those of us who are followers of Jesus, those of us who are Christians, we live as a minority in a pagan empire, in a pagan world. We live as a minority. All sorts of things go on around us. And all sorts of things are happening in our world uh, that are not God's will. All sorts of wars and rumors of wars and, and destruction and hatred and envy and jealousy. And all of that stuff, all you have to do is open a newspaper. All you have to do is uh, switch on the TV or listen to the radio and you hear it every time. And God has called us. He's called us to live at this time and in this place in order to make the difference. And the thing about Esther is she didn't hide who she was. In a sense, she, she, was, she was faithful to who she was. She was faithful as a Jew. She was faithful as part of the children of God. Um, uh, she was distinctive. She didn't merge. The easiest thing that could have happened for the Jews in Persia in those days would have been to say, let's forget our Jewishness. Let's merge with everyone else. Life will be easier for us. But you know, she stayed distinctive. And yet she didn't just stay distinctive. She stayed distinctive and she got involved with the society around her. I mean, she went to be beauty queen. She accepted the offer to be the new queen of the whole empire. And it led to all sorts of ethical dilemmas for her. We're going to look at some of those ethical dilemmas over the coming days. But do you know, because there were going to be ethical dilemmas, she didn't hide from that. She didn't stay quietly, hidden away from everywhere. She chose to be involved in her society and to be distinctive. We as followers of Jesus today, in our country, in our culture, in our world, we have a choice. And some of us choose to be distinctive. And uh, we, we form into our own little distinctive Christian huddles. 
where we kind of occasionally go on raiding parties uh, out into the nasty, evil world. Or we choose to engage with the culture around us and we forget to be distinctive and we're no different to anyone else. And when someone does find out we're a Christian, they're shocked, they're surprised. Flipping it, you, you're just like us. The trick, folks, is to get involved in society around us and to engage with the culture and to speak the language of the world around us and to stay distinctive and to be different. Because if we're not, if we don't resemble Jesus, because that's all holiness is. Holiness is about being like Jesus. If we don't do that, then we've got nothing to say to the culture around us. We've got nothing to say to our world. And as the story of Esther is unpacked, we see, we see a story of a young woman who, uh, to quote uh, Mordecai in what's going to be read for us tomorrow and talked about tomorrow, you know, was, was born for such a time as this. She was, she was born uh, to live for a purpose, to live for a reason. And guys, we are born to live for a purpose, to live for a reason, to live distinctively in a broken and hurting world, to live differently, and by doing that, to change the world, to change the history of the world. And some of you, some of us, we feel like we're a small minority. Some of us, we feel like people think we're irrelevant. Some of us feel that people think we're weird. But I tell you, there's something coming. There's something that's changing. And already we're seeing the beginning of it, just at the, what seems like the worst times in some ways in our nation and in our world. It's interesting how so many are starting to want to take note of the message that we live for, the Jesus that we follow. And one of the things that tragically we do in the church is by withdrawing from society, by withdrawing from those around us, it, we do that, some of us, because we've misunderstood. And some of your, maybe your parents or your leaders will misunderstand some of the Old Testament teaching on holiness. And we think that, 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 that what the Bible teaches is that in order to be holy, we've got to keep away from all those nasty, evil, terrible people out there. And, and then what we do is we end up with a ghetto mentality in the church where we have our Christian alternative to everything, where we have our Christian parties. We have our Christian everything else, and it's like everything's done so that, we, so that an alternative is provided so we don't end up out there. Well, I want to suggest to you tonight that that's getting it all wrong. Jesus was the most holy person there was, and he got involved with the world around him. He was the purest person there was, and yet he hung out with the publicans and sinners, with the drunks, with the tax collectors, and the tax collectors were like the traitors to, to Israel. He hung out with the worst of people, and yet he did it without sin. And in fact, there was something about him that drew people to God. There was something about his distinctive living in the middle of all the pain of society. And what we've done is we've kind of, some of us, we've withdrawn into the castle of the church and pulled up the drawbridge where we're safe. And we kind of do all churchy Christian stuff to each other 
in our youth groups and in our churches. And then we kind of, some of us, we remember, oh my goodness, we're supposed to be telling people about Jesus. We're supposed to be out there. There's the Great Commission. What should we do? Okay, well, we'll do it like this. We'll have a whole week where we go out there and we do things to them and we tell them about Jesus. So we spend ages uh, practicing for our mission week and we do our, practice our Christian mimes, our Christian dances, our Christian testimonies and we get into pairs and we practice telling our stories to each other until we've got them word perfect and then when we're ready we let down the drawbridge of the castle of the church and we all run out there into the world and we go in pairs so that when one of us is speaking the other stands behind praying protection so that we don't catch their non-christian germs and diseases and then at the end of a whole week we run back into the castle of the church, dragging two or three that somehow miraculously we've captured. Then we pull up the drawbridge and then we do something that we call discipleship at them. At the end of which they can't communicate with non-Christians either. And we call that evangelism. That's not evangelism, it's anti-evangelism. I'll tell you who thought that up. The devil from hell thought that up. And God's will is not that we let down the drawbridge of the castle of the church once a year, but that we break down the walls of the church. We become a church without walls, a church for the community, a church that lives and loves and serves, a church that makes a difference out there, a church that gets its hands dirty, a, a, a church that struggles with all the areas of grey because life actually isn't black and white. Life isn't as simple as sometimes we make it when we don't have to engage with real people and their real pain. And yet, we're called as distinctive, passionate followers of Jesus to go out there with a message. We're, we're called to go and to listen, but also to speak. And the message isn't, isn't about throwing Bible bombs at people from a safe distance and hoping that one explodes in the vicinity. The message is meant to be us. You know, the message of Christmas and the message of Easter is that God did not open a window in heaven one day and shout down to a broken and hurting and dying world, I love you. He came himself. He came himself. And you know what? God sends his church. He sends his church to be men and women on a mission. And we can make a difference in our bit of the world. But what we have to do first is we have to get, we have just to get such a love for him. And when we have a love for him, because we know how much he loves us, then his love infects us. His love takes us over. His love for a broken and hurting world gives us a reason for living and a reason for dying. A reason for, for being on this planet that's bigger than just me, that's bigger than, than, than satisfying my own needs. It's a reason for living and a reason for dying. Last July, I, I, I have to say, I, I love South Africa. And uh, uh, I love South Africa for all sorts of reasons. And one of the reasons is I see God's doing some things in that country that if, if it continues as it's begun, 
I think it will be a, a message to the rest of Africa and the rest of the world. Just 15, 16, 17 years ago, I, you, I'm sure you know this, there was an apartheid system in South Africa. When I first went to South Africa, there were blacks only and whites only beaches, blacks only and whites only toilets. Uh, uh, white people and black people couldn't really associate with each other in certain areas. Uh, there were all sorts of rules and regulations. And now you go there and you see, actually, it's one place in the world where the church at last is taking a lead in bringing people together for the sake of the gospel. And uh, uh, South, South Africa is a country with a, a massive, massive AIDS epidemic. Uh, there are some townships, there are some uh, areas of South Africa where 50, 60% of the population in some townships are HIV positive. And uh, uh, I have some friends who work there who are amazing, this older couple, who, um, who, who lived there, and they were, they were very, very um, rich and prosperous white people, and uh, uh, they were getting ready for their retirement. The husband had made a lot of money, and he still ran a business, and the wife just enjoyed herself at home. They loved Jesus, but they didn't have a clue what was going on in their land. Their names are Titch and Joan Smith, and uh, one day... Joan overheard her two Zulu maids talking to each other about how in the township where they lived, there were children starving to death. And, and she said to them, she said, don't be silly, no one's starving to death. No one's starving to death in South Africa. And they said, they are, they are where we live. And Joan made the biggest, I, I almost said mistake, but it wasn't a mistake, the best decision of her life. She said, take me, show me, I want to see. Well, she had no idea that there was a whole other world in her country. And they took her to this huge township called Amaoti that has 500,000 people living in squalor in, 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 these, in these horrible, horrible conditions. I've been there now many times. And people with nothing, literally nothing, and she couldn't believe what she saw. So this, this elderly, mid, upper middle class, sweet lady, she thought, I've got to do something. So ridiculously, she started making peanut butter sandwiches and taking them there. It was crazy. Well, from that, her husband has given up his job completely. And they are there in Amaoti every day. And you know, now they feed every day about a thousand children every day with their team they have kindergartens for little children that there's about again about about now a thousand children from a few months old to five years old and and they were showing me around one of the kindergartens and there were about i don't know about 80 children there about 40 boys 40 girls and they said to me, you see these girls, this was from a few months to five years old. Forgive me for putting it like this, but you may as well tell it as it is. They said, half these girls have been raped already. And uh, they gave me a little baby girl I was holding, six months old. And then they told me that already they knew that this six-month-old baby girl had been raped by six different men. And they did it because the medicine men told them that, um, uh, that if you want to be healed of AIDS, then what you have to do is sleep with a virgin. 
which is kind of bonkers. But there we go. And this little baby, utterly destroyed. Utterly her body destroyed. And she was just a blank, even at six months old. And there is this couple, because they love Jesus, and because they have his love for his world, they're getting involved, and they're taking risks of faith, and their life is different, and it's not so comfortable. Because you know there's no great restaurants in Amaoti Township. There's no golf courses in Amaoti Township. It's just death. It's just death and squalor and nothing. And they're there every day, but they'll tell you they've never been more alive. They've never been more alive. And they've never been closer to Jesus because Jesus is on the side of the poor and the broken. I took last July, I think I started telling you this, 350 young people from here, from England, from Britain, uh, to do a kind of a, uh, to serve uh, in Durban, KwaZulu-Natal, uh, for about two weeks. And you know, there was one group that were doing some projects in one township that was linked to a church. We did it always with the local churches. And uh, when we went to see uh, this church, now I go to loads of churches around the world. I visit loads of churches. And sometimes you hear church leaders boasting, you know, about how many people in my church. Did you know that we've got this number of home groups? Did you know that this is our budget? And, you know, sometimes you get sick of it. Oh, for goodness sakes, shut up. Who cares? But there was this church in a town called Pine Town that overlooks uh, something, a valley called the Valley of a Thousand Hills. And, um, and the leaders of this church, when we went there with the young people, they, they said to us, they said, have you seen our letterbox? Have you seen the size of our letterbox? And I thought, that's the weirdest thing I've ever heard. You know, you know, we've got 3,000 people in our church. Well, we've got a big letterbox. And they showed us this letterbox, and it was a sort of letterbox that opened out. And, and I, I kind of made all the right noises. I said, God, that is an amazing letterbox. That is, can I, can I just, that's incredible. And they said, yes, they were so proud. They said, they said until a year ago, our letterbox was just that big. But now we've made it really big and you can open it out like that. I said, that's wonderful. You must get a lot of mail. And they said, we didn't do it for the mail. We made this letterbox that big so that if a mother wants to abandon her baby, all she has to do is open the letterbox, put the baby inside and close it and walk away. And when she closes it, an alarm goes off inside the church. And one of us comes out and collects the baby. And they did that because they got sick and tired of finding dead, abandoned babies on the side of the road and in the gutter because their mothers abandoned them, because the mothers were dying of AIDS and the mothers couldn't even feed themselves, let alone feed their children. And they couldn't bear to watch their children die. So these little babies would die slow, agonizing death. And the reaction of the young people that came with me was twofold. The first one was, what sort of world do we live in that this is still allowed to happen? But the second reaction was this, a little bit of pride. Isn't that amazing that God caused a church to care so much that they built a bigger letterbox? That they built a bigger letterbox. That's what it means to be distinctively different and yet get involved in the society around you. 
I just want to maybe tell you one more story, again, from South Africa that just kills me and is amazing. And it's obviously true. I'm, well, they're all true. I'm not making them up. It's, anyway. Um, uh, just after uh, the apartheid era finished, and uh, there was uh, uh, often when many African countries have uh, become independent, it's been payback time. And uh, the new rulers have paid back, like seems to have happened in Zimbabwe, Rhodesia. You know, the people that maybe, maybe did stuff wrong before, whatever. Well, in South Africa, Nelson Mandela decided to do it differently. And he and a guy called Archbishop Desmond Tutu, they decided that there would be no vengeance, but there would be forgiveness. And so they instituted what they called the Truth and Reconciliation Commission. So instead of, of, of beating up the previous oppressors, they decided to bring people together. And there was a place where people who had committed crimes against other human beings, they were, they were allowed to tell what they had done. That was the truth bit, speaking the truth, saying, this is what I did. And then there was an opportunity for reconciliation, not pretending that crimes didn't take place, but rather than punishment, starting a new era and, and trying to provide an opportunity for reconciliation to start again. What an amazing concept. Well, in one of these hearings, uh, they brought to the hearing a former policeman, an Afrikaans policeman, and his name was Mr. Van Wick. And they uh, brought him... Uh, and he stood in the witness box in the dock, and he had to confess what he did. And there sitting opposite him uh, was a, an old, old African lady, Khosa lady. And he said, I, with my friends, some other policemen, in the height of the troubles, we went to this lady's home, and we took... There'd, there'd been some sort of riot, and they wanted to get revenge. And they went to her home, and he said, we took her husband, and we took him away, and we beat him with bars until he was dead. And then we buried him. And then, a few months later, we went back to her home, and we took her son, and we took him away, and we made a bonfire, and we put, made, we put rods that went kind of through him. And then we barbecued him. And we barbecued him over the fire. And as we were doing that, we were laughing. And he screamed until he died. And then, when he was fully burnt, we just left his ashes all over that area. Then, the chairman of the commission turned to this woman, this old woman who'd lost her husband and who'd lost her son. And he said, now it's your turn. What would you like to see happen to Mr. Van Wick? What would you like to do to him? And this old lady got up and she said, I want to ask for three things of Mr. Van Wick. First of all, I want to ask that he will take me to where my husband's body and my son's ashes are, where they did this crime, that I may pick up a bit of the earth and that I may give my husband and my son a proper burial, 
that I might mourn for them and that I might grieve for them. Second, she said, I want Mr. Van Wick to come over to me so that I can give him a hug and tell him that God forgives him and so do I. Thirdly, I want to ask Mr. Van Wick one more thing. I want him to come to my little shack once a month so that once a month I can cook him a meal and I can look after him and show love to him that I can no longer show to my husband and my son. At this point, Mr. Van Wick passed out. He was so shocked by what he'd heard. And then as they brought him round, this old lady shuffled towards him and she began to hug him and he wept. And at that point, spontaneously, people started singing all over that courtroom. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. I was blind, but now I see. They're just a few stories from South Africa about a bunch of people who are changing their nation. There's a long way to go, but it's a miracle so far. Why can't God use us here in these days? We can either feel sorry for ourselves, oh, we're this little minority, they don't get us, they think that we're just, you know, all of that stuff, or we can get out there. We can, we can ask God to give us such a love for this world that we can go out there and we can make a difference in his name and we can, we can speak for him and live for him and live distinctively. And you know, I finish with this, I promise. What are the, the elements in our culture? There's, 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 we, have a, we live in a culture of consumerism where it's all about what I can get, of individualism, where it's all about me and my life. And we live in a culture of greed. We see that everywhere. How about if we, as God's children, we go out there and we live in a spirit of generosity. We live generously. And not just with money, with our time, with our love. That we live generously. That we live in a spirit of community as God's people to love each other and to, and to bring others in to the family where there is love to go around because that's what the Trinity is. The Trinity is, is the family of God with more than enough love to go around. And in a culture of consumerism, why don't we stop living for me and live for him and for others? And you know, we can change the world, even ordinary old us. I mean, as you look at me, you're thinking, flipping egg, that fat lump changed the world. You must be kidding. You must be kidding. Well, as I look at you, I think, flipping egg, this bunch changed the world. You must be kidding. But you know what? God takes lumps like me and people like you just like he took Esther, just like he took Mordecai, 
and God used them to change their world. Well, he wants to change the world through ordinary old us as we look to him. I've landed, and because I've landed, I'm going to sit down because I'm also old and my legs have to carry a lot. And just before, just before I...